Hey, Junior here. Thanks for hitting play. Quick shout out to Ohio and Alabama. Thank you so much for sharing this podcast. Disclaimer for this episode. It's not going to be like most of my messages. You'll find this sermon gets somewhat technical, a little academic, but it's on purpose. To answer tough questions, sometimes you got to get a little technical. So stay locked in. Keep up. I think you'll find this next bit fascinating. Now, the question on the docket for today is a question that I'm sure you've wondered before. I know people have asked you this before, uh, because this is a very common question, and that is, is the Bible actually reliable? Now, usually it's phrased as, isn't the Bible unreliable? I mean, it's filled with contradictions, isn't it? Forty different human authors spanning 1,500 years, an old collection of writings. It's outdated. It's been copied over and over and over and over. It goes against science, doesn't it? Why follow something so unreliable? Like, this is a real question. And it's a big question. You have friends that just assume it's unreliable. Many professors blare this. Your kids are definitely going to hear this. So what do we do with this? Is, is this true? And the only way to answer this question is to test it. I mean, it's really the only way to find out if something is reliable is you got to try it. So I got early last winter... I took my daughters up to Camp Iwana, and, and uh, the lake had just frozen over. And I was a little nervous to, like, step out on the lake. Like, the ice thick enough, you know, I, di- I didn't know if it was reliable, so I had to test it. So I sent all my three daughters out on the ice just to make sure. <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. I went out there, and I jumped around and kicked at it before they came out. I mean, that's how you test to make sure something's reliable. And so let's do that with Scripture today. Let's, let's test it. This is going to be fun. This is a very, very different sermon than usual. I wouldn't say this is like a strong suit of mind. We're going to get uh, technical today. But to answer tough questions, sometimes you got to get technical. So today, to see if Scripture is reliable, we're going to test it in three different ways. And the first test that we're going to take is the contradiction test. Dun, dun, dun. Doesn't the Bible have contradictions? I hear this all the time. Bloggers blog about this. This is a very, very popular tweet you know, you believe the Bible? It's full of contradictions. Funny thing is, is most of the time when you ask, well, where? They can't tell you. It's just something that they heard and it gets repeated and over and over and then assumed. But some people have done their homework and have looked into this and they found apparent contradictions. So what we're going to do today, again, this is going to be a little fun. We're going to take three popular contradictions in the scripture that people point to and we're just going to look at them. We're going to unpack them, like the top three contradictions, if you will. You ready? Okay. Most popular, most popular contradiction that people point to in Scripture is actually in the first few pages of, of the Bible. So if you have your Bibles, open to Genesis 1 and 2. It's the first couple pages of Scripture, and, uh, and that's where we're going to start. Genesis 1 and 2. This is often talked about in college campuses. I remember my freshman year in college, I was sitting in my philosophy class up in Madison, Wisconsin, and my philosophy teacher got up, and she tried to disprove the Bible using this contradiction right here. Uh, you hear of like, kids who grew up in the church, and then they go off to college, and they lose their faith because a, a professor challenged them you know, and showed them contradictions in Scripture. Uh, maybe you were one of those. A lot of times, it's this contradiction right here that they'll point to. So Genesis 1 and 2. Now Genesis 1 and 2, you might know this, is the story of creation. In, in the original Hebrew, it's very poetic, it's very beautiful. 
But the order of creation is clearly outlined in chapter 1. So here's the outline of creation in chapter 1. It's uh, light being separated from darkness. Day 2 is the waters being separated from the atmosphere. Day 3 is the land and and the vegetation. Day 4 is the planets, the sun, moon, stars, solar systems, all that. Day 5, God creates the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. And then day 6, God creates animals and men. And then on day 7, God rests. So Genesis 1 gives this very clear order of creation, but then in Genesis chapter 2, it backpedals a bit, and it goes into more detail on the creation of man and, and woman, which, man, which happened on day 6. And, and the problem is, is it's in a different order. So look at this. This is Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2.5 says, When no bush of the field has yet sprung up in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for there was nobody worked the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust. Now, whoa, hold on here. According to Genesis chapter 1, vegetation came on day 3. Man came on day 6. Vegetation came before man. But now here in chapter 2 verse 5 says, No small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for there was no man to work the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust. So, okay, which is it? There's a contradiction here. Is chapter 1 right? First plants, then man? Or is chapter 2 right? Plants came before man, or plants came after man could work the field. We're not off to a great start here, are we? First couple of chapters, first couple of pages into Scripture, and Scripture screws up. And if we left it at this, which many have, and many do, we would conclude, and this, this thing right here is faulty. There's obvious contradictions. I mean, it's on the first couple of pages. Why would you believe this stuff? Well, let's look at it closer. The key is this phrase right here, of the field, of the field. It's this little phrase that actually answers the question as well as sheds more light on creation. Of the field is not used in chapter 1. In fact, the word, the Hebrew word for vegetation in chapter 1 is a totally different Hebrew word for vegetation in chapter 2. Two completely different words. Why would Moses use two different words? Because it's two types of vegetation. The vegetation created before man in chapter 1 is a wild vegetation. It's untouched. But the vegetation that came after Adam in chapter 2 is a farmed vegetation. That's what of the field means right here. It's the Hebrew word seda, which means farmable vegetations. Beans, wheat, vegetables, crops. Crops came after man farmed them. So before God breathed life into man, the vegetation was was wild. It was like, like a rainforest, if you will. Then God had man grow crop and vegetation and organized farm. Makes a lot of sense. So the apparent contradiction in Genesis 1 and 2, it's just that. It's apparent. There's no contradiction. See, that's the thing is when you do your homework and, and you look and you investigate and you get the context and you get the, the wording and you dissect it, it stands. And it's kind of fun, isn't it? Should we do another one? All right, 1 John 3.15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So the Bible is very clear. Even if church isn't your thing, you know this. You just can't hate. And Scripture does not allow you to hate. And there's other places in Scripture that say, if you don't love a brother, the love of the Father is not in him. I mean, it's a big deal. Can't hate. But then look at this. Jesus says this in Luke 14.26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be 
my disciple. I've seen people tweet this, just taking shots at scripture. This is crazy. Jesus tells us to hate. If you want to follow me, you got to, you got to hate your family. Now, obviously a contradiction in, in many ways. Scripture tells us to honor our father and mother. Scripture tells us to not neglect our children. Scripture tells us to love our spouse, to, to not hate. And then Jesus comes along and says, eh, you got you to hate everybody if you want to follow me. So what do we do with this? Because this is a verse. Well, ancient literature and really ancient culture in general uh, often overstated things to prove a point. You know, we still do this today. We, we say things like, I'd kill for a taco right now. I wouldn't actually kill somebody for a taco. I'm just saying that I'm hungry. We overstate things to prove a point. And this is what Jesus is doing right here. He's using a literary device known as a hyperbolic contrast. Hyperbolic contrast. It's overstating while contrasting. So an example of this would be the, uh, the formal church down the street makes the bridge look like a rave. It's hyperbole and contrasting. Obviously, we're not a rave, but in comparison to the fancy pants churches, kind of feels like we're a rave sometimes. It's a, it's a hyperbolic contrast. And Jesus loved using hyperbolic contrast. He taught a lot using, in fact, a lot of, uh, Jesus was very funny, a lot of his humor was using hyperbolic contrast. So the point that Jesus is making here is that a believer's allegiance to Jesus should be so strong uh, for Jesus that in comparison to their love for anything else or anyone else, it almost looks like hate. And Jesus is not contradicting scripture that tells us to honor our father and mother. He's simply saying that our love for him must be on a totally, completely different level. And many of you have experienced this or are experiencing this. And Nicole and I had a friend over to my house on, on Easter, so last week. And um, she's paying a relational price for following Jesus. She didn't have anywhere to go on Easter. Uh, her old friends and some of her family feel like she turned, on, she turned her back on them because she follows Jesus now. Now, she hasn't. She loves her old friends. She loves her family. But her allegiance to Jesus is, is stronger and it's being interpreted as almost like a hate to them because... She has an allegiance. This is what Jesus is getting at here. It's not a contradiction. It's a tool for teaching. Let's look at one more. Uh, one of the most attacked portions of Scripture is the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The reason being is if you can discredit the Gospels, you have to throw out Jesus. So the Gospels, they have a target on their head. It's like, it's like a house of cards. Discredit one of these guys, everything just comes crashing down. Now, all four Gospels actually vary on details to different stories. So, for example, if you were to look at the popular story of the feeding of the 5,000, uh, one of the Gospels, one of the writers will focus on the little boy who brought his lunch. One of the writers will focus on the crowd that's hungry. Another writer will focus on Jesus performing the miracle. This happens with many, many stories. It gives a different perspective. It gives different dimensions to the same story. And that gives credibility. You think about it. If Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John got together and they concocted the, these stories, they'd all write the same details from the same perspective. Or if they plagiarized each other, they would just have one perspective. But they have four different perspectives, and it gives a bigger picture to the story. It, it would be kind of like if, uh, if some guy right now jumped on stage with a weapon, and then afterwards we were all questioned. We, are, you know, we had to give report to the police officers about what happened. Uh, some of us would, would focus on his, on his clothing. Well, he wore this, this, and this. Some of us would focus on his facial features. So he kind of looked like this. Uh, some of us would, would focus on what he said. He said this. Some of us would focus on the weapon. He was holding this. We'd all focus on different elements, but we'd all still be in agreement. We wouldn't contradict. We would be painting a bigger picture. Our, that, our, our different perspectives give the bigger picture. Um, this is... This is what the Gospels... This is how, essentially how the Gospels work. But sometimes they do appear to contradict. So let's look at one instance. When Jesus was hanging on the cross... 
there was a sign above Jesus with an inscription. Now, each gospel writer says something different about what was written on this sign. In fact, look at this. This is what Matthew writes. Matthew writes, this is on the sign. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Mark writes this, king of the Jews. Little difference, right? It's a bit, actually, it's not too little because Mark says Jesus' name is on the sign, but Matthew says, no, Jesus' name was on the sign. Then Luke comes along and says, this is the king of the Jews. So Mark and Luke are pretty much identical. Matthew's saying, no, Jesus' name was on the sign. Then John comes along and says, Jesus of Nazareth. Now we have a new title added, the king of the Jews. So even more different. John said Nazareth was written on the sign. None of the others say that. Mark and Luke say Jesus' name wasn't even on the sign. The other two say, no, Jesus' name was on the sign. So what do we do with this? Was Nazareth on the sign? Was Jesus' name on the sign? A lot of people, especially around Good Friday, will say there's a contradiction. Major climax of Scripture and the Gospels contradict. So what do we do with this? Well, the key to this popular contradiction is John 19.20, which reads, Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the sign is written in three different languages, which is important because each gospel writer appeals to a different audience. So, for example, Matthew's audience were the Jews primarily, and so he would have focused on the Aramaic because the, the Jews would have read. Uh, John wrote that Pilate wrote the inscription. Since Pilate was a Roman, Pilate would have written it in Latin, and so likely John would have recorded the Latin version. Luke was Greek and wrote two Greeks. He would have likely recorded the Greek inscription, and it's believed that Mark would have as well. That's why their descriptions align. So the apparent contradiction is just that. It's apparent. See, when, when you dig in deep and you wrestle with God's word, you come out of it. It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like when Jacob wrestled with God. You, you come out of wrestling with God's word. You come out of it blessed. And it's kind of fun. Scripture stands the contradiction test. Let's give it another test, though. Let's give it the accuracy test. Just because something doesn't contradict itself doesn't mean that it's accurate. I mean, I could write, I could write an article this week about how the sun is actually cold. And even if I didn't contradict myself, doesn't mean that my findings are reliable. So let's give Scripture the accuracy test. Now, one common thing that critics will point to when it comes to Scripture is they'll point to, and this is going to sound super um, pedantic, but it, it is what people look at and say, no, this is, this is wrong in Scripture. It's, it's inaccurate. It's people say, well, the sun rises. Scripture says the sun rises. That's outdated. That's ethnocentric. The sun doesn't rise, it's stationary, the earth rotates, air right there. You say, God wrote this? It's not accurate. Say, okay, well, let's, let's, let's apply this to everyday life and communication. We'd never be able to talk to each other. Like uh, yesterday morning, I, I, so uh, this last week, I went to um, Tennessee with Jordan and uh, Denim and uh, Jimmy out there. We, went, we, um, we said, let's go to Nashville. And then Jordan said, yeah, we're going to Nashville. And then he rented a cabin like two hours south of Nashville, like in Alabama. I'm not quite sure how that's Nashville. But it was, it was beautiful. It was, in the middle, it was in the middle of nowhere. Like it was on the border of Alabama and Tennessee. It was just gorgeous. And I, I, got, I woke up early uh, yesterday morning and went outside before the sun rose. And on the porch, like the sky was just littered with stars. I mean, it was unbelievably gorgeous. Now, I could come back to Illinois and I could tell you, yeah, guys, there are more stars in Alabama than in Chicago. And you understand what I'm saying. But technically, you could say, you're an idiot. 
Stars are out all the time, everywhere. Even during the day, you just, the sun washes them out. And you can see more stars. You can't see as many in Chicago because of light pollution. They're still there. You just can't see them, so you are wrong. That would be silly, wouldn't it? It should be dumb. But sometimes people do this with the Bible. See, the Bible is accurate where it intends to be accurate. This was never a discussion on astronomy. It's speaking a language. It's not addressing a scientific discussion. It's simply using everyday language and speech. In other words, God gets down on our level to communicate with us in ways that we understand using our language and our idioms. You think about it this way. It is crazy to think that an all-knowing God communicates to us, and we can't even hold a candle to his brilliance and his knowledge. And this sounds so bad, but as, as, beautiful, and as, as beautiful and as deep as Scripture is, it is still God dumbing some things down for us so that we can understand it. It's kind of like my three-year-old. My three-year-old, Reese, she's got a, a very extensive vocabulary because the girls in my house all know how to talk. And so she's picked up on a lot of words. But even with her very large vocabulary, um, when, I, when I talk with Reese, I speak, I speak at her level. Uh, right now, she's very into babies, loves babies. In fact, she came here uh, last week for Easter. Maybe you saw her. She had like she had like a baby strapped to her chest in a, in a diaper bag, and she's three years old. When she rides her bike, her little training wheel bike, she has like a little seat on the back of her bike that she puts her babies in. Like she's just very obsessed with babies. She'll be my daughter that pulls into my house one day with a 15-passenger van full of kids. Like I got a lot of grandkids on my horizon. And she's very, very inquisitive. And so a lot of times uh, she'll, in fact, I was, was, uh, just, it was just me and her last night, and, and she'll say things, you know, like, Daddy, how are babies made? Now, I'm not going to tell her, like, I'm not going to lie to her and say the stork, but I'm also not going to, like, go into full detail. And so I'll say, well, Daddy and Mommy decided to have a baby, and we got you. She's like, well, how? It's like, well, we had a kissing party, and just the two of us, and God put you in Mommy's tummy. And she's like, well, Daddy, I want a kissing party. <laughs> not until you're married, and maybe not even then. Like, I'm, I'm not going to go into, I'm not going to talk to my three-year-old and go into the specifics of sex. And so I'll say something that her little mind at the time can kind of understand using her language. Mommy and daddy love each other. God gave us you. Now, I wouldn't use that same language if I was speaking at a university on sex. That would be ridiculous. But that's kind of what sometimes people do with, with Scripture, is they take something like this and they force it into a scientific discussion, and, and Scripture's going, I wasn't addressing the scientific discussion. The Scripture uses everyday language. Of course God knows the sun doesn't rise. He created it, but he's speaking to us using culturally appropriated language, and it's unfair to take the statement and force it into something else. One of the best ways, though, to, uh, I, I don't want to like play defense all, all, you know, this whole message. Um, so one of the, one of the, Best ways, though, to do this accuracy test is by looking at where Scripture and history collide. It's, it's pretty fascinating. It's one of my favorite things to read. Uh, for example, if you were to read the, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, he's a prophet a long time ago. Ezekiel prophesied that Nebuchadnezzar II would overthrow the city of Tyre. Uh, Ezekiel wrote this well beforehand, and history tells us that it's true, that that did happen, and Ezekiel called it. Like, All right, cool. It's pretty cool. What's even cooler, though, is Ezekiel wrote that the debris from the city, of, and this is very specific, the debris from the city of Tyre would be pushed out into the sea. That's very, very specific. Now this is odd because Nebuchadnezzar did not do this. So for quite some time, this little prophecy seemed wrong. That specific thing did not happen. 
But then hundreds of years after Ezekiel wrote this, Alexander the Great attacked Tyre. And the people of Tyre, this is where Tyre was, they fled to the island just off the coast. Now Alexander the Great did not want to mobilize his navy to go attack the island. So do you know what he did? He pushed the old debris into the sea to create a causeway between the mainland and the island. So today, if you were to go on Google Maps, you would see this is no longer an island. It's all connected to the mainland because the debris was pushed to make a causeway. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Like old Ezekiel, hundreds of years before this, called it. Love that kind of stuff. Now, this kind of stuff happens all the time with archaeology, so much so that secular archaeologists will use the Bible to find cities. Uh, one of our guides in Israel um, do, does archaeology. He's like, I, I, don't, like, I don't buy into this, but this is my, my main book that I use when I'm, when I'm going to digs because it, it, it proves to be accurate over and over and over. Uh, for quite some time, scholars began doubting that Pontius Pilate ever existed. The Roman records just weren't there. I mean, to be a governor um, in Rome and to not have many records or any records outside of Scripture, it just is it's, it's crazy. And so a lot of scholars say he just never existed. That all changed in 1961 when archaeologists uncovered the Pilate Stones, a limestone slab with Pilate's name and title written on it. In fact, if, you're, if, you, go to the, if you went to Israel with the bridge, we saw this slab in Caesarea Martima uh, right by the foundations of of Pilate's house. To add to that, three years ago, this is very recent, three years ago a copper ring was found with Pilate's name written on it, and this, this ring dates back to the time of Jesus when Pilate, when Scripture says Pilate would have lived. Again, Scripture out in front. Now for a very long time, many critics pointed at Luke 3.1 as being a big error. So Luke 3.1, um, I probably don't even need to put, put this on the screen, because this is a verse that you have memorized, I'm, I'm sure you have memorized this verse. Uh, this, this verse says, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Phil, tetrarch of Iteria and, and Traconius, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. I, I didn't even put this up there. I'm sure you already had this memorized. All these names align with the timing that this was written. So Luke is writing about um, John the Baptist and who is, you know, who is in leadership at the time. And uh, all of these names line up except for Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Many historical records show that Lysanias was executed 50 years before this by Mark Antony. A lot of records are very clear on that. So that means that Scripture is off 50 years. And so for years, this was pointed to as just a big error in Scripture. Until more discoveries were found and it was discovered that, oh, Lysanias wasn't the only Lysanias. And that there was a Lysanias II. And he was a ruler. And guess where he ruled? In Abilene. Again, Scripture out in front. Taking heat, but then coming out to be completely accurate. So many more stories like this. Uh, for years, historians thought the biblical account of the Hittites was false. The Hittites never existed. We have no records at all outside of Scripture. There were no Hittites until they discovered a Hittite monument. And then another monument, and then another monument. And now scholars say the Hittites were a very large society. It really could go on and on and on. Uh, King David discoveries, uh, Babylonian records that uh, talk about a, a massive language confusion, possibly pointing to the Tower of Babel. I mean, again, just go on and on and on. This is all archaeological, though. What about science? Right? Science and the Bible, they don't go hand in hand, right? They're like opposed. They don't go hand in hand, right? Oh, they do, and they have. Many believe that the book of Job is the oldest written book in the Bible. So before Moses recorded or wrote down Genesis, wrote Genesis, Job writes this. He writes, he, 
meaning God, stretches out the north over the empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. I mean, the idea of hanging the earth on nothing would have been a ridiculous notion during this time. First off, who thinks this way? This was written before the Bronze Age. Nobody thinks this way. The idea of space, gravity, orbit, like, I mean, for much of history, many believed earth to be on the, sitting on the back of an animal or, you know, like Atlas holding the earth up. Yet, this was proven to be true. Uh, check out Psalm 8.8. It says, in the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. Paths of the sea. What a ridiculous notion. The, the oceans are a, ma- are a mass of water, paths in the sea. 2,600 years after this was written, in the 1850s, we discovered currents. Actually, because of this verse, the guy who spearheaded the, that oceanography research uh, got into it because he read this verse, like, what's up with paths of the sea? And then he discovered consistent currents, paths, if you will. 2,800 years ago, Scripture was talking about oceanography. And we're, we're just trying to catch up with Scripture. One more, one more about science. Acts 17, 26 says, And he, meaning God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Genesis 3, 20 says that Eve is the mother of all mankind. And so the Bible is very clear. All humans are one blood, descended from one man and one woman, one blood. In the 19th century, there was a movement among biologists to, uh, that argued that we as human beings evolved from different species. Different races came from different species. It actually fueled racism during the time. So they're saying, we're not the same. We, we've evolved from different species. My, my species is more advanced than your species. Uh, my race is further along in the evolutionary process than, than your race. And so during this time, biology and scripture were just opposed it wasn't until genetics came along and became understood, and through genetics, biology has found, no, we were wrong. Genetically, there is only one human race, okay, from one thing, one blood. You get scripture out in front. This has gone head-to-head with historians, with archaeologists, with biologists, and it continues to be proven accurate over and over and over. It has withstood the accuracy test for thousands of years. One more test, and then let's call it the preservation test. Preservation test. How how can we trust this? It's been copied over and over and over, right? And people make mistakes, and people tamper with stuff. Like, has what was originally written, was it preserved? We've had these questions. We've all wondered. Bible's been copied. Bible's been translated. How do we know? It's got to be way different today than it was during Jesus' time, right? And that's a fair question. It's a, it's a question that many people have asked for hundreds of years. In fact, for a, for a very long time, uh, it was widely believed that the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament book that foretells the Messiah, many people believed that for hundreds, I mean, again, for hundreds of years, argued that Christians tampered with it. So after Jesus, the Christians tampered with the book of Isaiah, the prophecies, to make it look like the Messiah aligned with Jesus. I mean, surely somebody had to tamper with it. At least they made mistakes. This is a big conversation for a very long time. In 1947, a shepherd boy, not far from Jerusalem, was was looking for one of his sheep. And he came to a few caves. In fact, a uh, bunch of us from the bridge last year, but a little over a year ago, where we broke away from the group and we hiked up to this cave. And so the shepherd boy was there and he didn't want to go inside, but he didn't know if his sheep had wandered in. So he picked up a rock and he threw it into the cave to see if maybe the rock would scare the sheep and it would make a noise. But instead of hearing a sheep, he heard pottery shatter. Come to find out, there were jars in the cave filled with scrolls, scrolls of parts of the Bible. And get this, included was the book of Isaiah, 
100 years before Jesus. So in 1947, the oldest scroll of Isaiah that, that, that we had was from around 900 A.D. This one was 1,000 years older, and it matched an incredible discovery. It, it amazed even like the critics. The manuscripts of Scripture, they match. Just, we believe that the book of John, we have the second copy. So the, the, the copy that John wrote, the copy of that. I mean, that, that's just, that's incredible. Think about it this way. Uh, there are... 251 manuscripts of Julius Caesar's work. And Julius Caesar's work has been copied over and over and over. The oldest copy that we have of Julius Caesar's work is from a thousand years after he died. We have 251 manuscripts. And nobody ever like doubts what Julius Caesar wrote. You ever quote Julius Caesar, nobody's ever going to say, well, I doubt he said that because everything's been, you know, been tra- you know, translated and copied. Nobody ever says that. We're pretty confident we have what Julius Caesar um, wrote. 251 manuscripts of his writing. Homer, we have 1,800 manuscripts. Now, 1800 is a lot. That gives us 95% confidence that we have his original words. There are over 5,000 manuscripts of Scripture throughout the years, giving 99% confidence that what we have is exactly what is written. So the truth is, if we say Scripture can't be relied on because, you know, the, the translating and the copying, if, if you say that, then you have to throw out the rest of written history. Scripture has got the best manuscripts and the most confidence by far. It has been incredibly, incredibly preserved. I'm not saying you have to embrace it. I'm not even saying you have to believe it. I'm just saying for those who do embrace Scripture, it's not crazy. Because this is very, very reliable. The popular contradictions are not in there. When it comes to historical and scientific accuracy, I mean, it's overwhelming. We just scratched the surface on that. And preservation, it's the best thing we got by far. It has blown away the world's top curators. So coming out of this, I just got to say, study the Bible. Study the Bible. Even if you're skeptical of it, it's worth a shot. Take it apart. Put it back together. Test it on your own. I am confident it will stand because it has for thousands of years. So study it. And I, I know this is like, this seems like for, for those of us who are Christians, it kind of seems like elementary, you know, okay, study the Bible. But let me ask you, are you really studying God's word? Like, are you really studying it? Come on. Consistently. In it each day, immersing yourself in it. This is the number one admitted problem among Christians. And we, we, all, we, we say this all the time, especially in small group. It's one of the biggest things we say in small group. We're just not in the word enough. And unfortunately, we're feeling the effects. Because statistically today, Christians are more divided, more uneducated in scriptures, more blinded, and more distracted than ever. And it's because we're not in this. It's this that keeps us unified. Forget all voting the same way. It's this that keeps us unified. It's this that keeps us from getting blinded, and it's this that keeps us focused and on mission, not distracted. I know, I know, I get it. It's hard to read sometimes. I, I bought a collection of, uh, like a book of a, a collection of essays written by an English author from 100 years ago. I feel so stupid when I read it. Like I'm reading it through, I'm like, I don't understand. I'll read sentences three, four times before I understand, oh, I think he's saying that. Like I just, it's so discouraging. I feel so stupid reading this guy. Kind of feels like that reading the Bible sometimes, doesn't it? Don't give up because of that. A few helps to help you as you read the Bible. Now first, the first help I would give is the NLT Study Bible. In fact, I have one up here. We have a couple at the uh, Welcome Center if you want to pick one up. Otherwise, just you know, Amazon it. Um, if you're struggling 
with reading the Bible and understanding, invest in this. It's, it's an easier read translation. So on my own, like for personal Bible reading, I read the NLT. And then when I do studying or I preach, I, I preach the ESV version. Um, but this is just more of an easier read. And then when you get stuck on something, which you will, there's cheats at the bottom of the page that kind of help you out. So if you're reading, you know, for example, you be reading Second uh, Thessalonians, and you see verse 5, you're like... I, what is Paul saying? This doesn't make any sense. You can go down here, and a lot, a lot of times they have cheats at the bottom of the page that just give an explanation. Or it says, go back and read this scripture. And then you read that, oh, okay, that's what he's saying. So these, um, these study Bibles really, really help. Second, the second help that I would give you is gotquestions.org. It always happens, doesn't it? You, you read the Bible, and then you got a question from it that you just can't answer. This is why I get a lot of messages from people on social media, and I love them. I'm not complaining. I love them. You know, be like, Junior, I read this. What, 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 what does that mean? What's up with that? Again, I love those questions. I, I run into the same uh, stuff too sometimes. This is a good website with great answers. It doesn't answer everything. You might type your question and it doesn't answer it, uh, but it does answer a lot, and, and it can give you resources to help as you research. See, that's the thing, and let me say this, is so often... Christians, we feel like this responsibility to know all the answers. I do. I mean, I'm a pastor. I should know all the answers, right? Problem is, I'm not the brightest guy. Just talk to my wife. And so (laughs) let me relieve some pressure on you. You're not responsible to have all the answers. You're not. But you are responsible to dig in. And you are responsible to get more info. And you are responsible to study. And you are responsible to navigate those tougher discussions and know how to handle God's word. And this website is just a great help as you go about that. And then the third help I would give is Bible Project videos. These are fun. These are short uh, animated YouTube clips that give the background of scripture. Like the guy who does these, I, I uh, went to church with him up in Wisconsin. Great guy. Super, super smart. And he makes these great little fun animated videos. And so, uh, so let's say tomorrow morning, you know, you wake up, you're like, okay, I'm going to read the Bible. i got to read the Bible. And you, you're, you're reading Genesis. You just go on YouTube for three minutes, type in, you know, Genesis, or Bible Project Genesis. And a few-minute video will pop up, and it gives you a few tools. You know, hey, remember this is your reading. Know this background as you're reading. Here's a couple tools to help you as you read. And it's, it's just, it's helpful. But those are the three resources that work for me. They may not work for you. You might get more into this and, and you find something better. That's fantastic. It's not a one-size-fits-all. Find what works for you. But the most important thing is, is you keep working at knowing God's Word, knowing God's Word, and immersing yourself in God's Word. That's the thing. If you were to look at the history of God's people throughout history, even before Jesus, you know, God's people treated Scripture in a very special way. Like uh, the Jew- Jewish people, if you were to go to like Israel or a Jewish area, um, they, they put scripture, they have like a, they have a, this little, it looks like a little bar with a little scroll inside of it, and they attach it to the doorposts of their homes. Like I have one on, on my doorpost. It's just this beautiful picture of, of fulfilling what God's word tells us to do, to write it on the doorpost of our homes. Uh, Jewish people would bind it on their wrists, symbolizing what the law commands. I mean, for, for, for most of history, God's people, the first thing that children learned to read was scripture. Verses that were hung up in, in the living areas. If you follow Jesus, you were actively memorizing scripture. It didn't matter if you were a kid or an adult. You were actively memorizing scripture and you were teaching it to your children and you were quoting it with them. And family Bibles were passed down throughout the generations. And for most of history, this has been seen by our people as a precious, precious, precious treasure. Which is why in 303 AD, when Emperor Diocletian decreed that the spread of Christianity should be stopped, 
Christian scriptures that were being passed around or to be burned. This decree made it all the way to North Africa where Pastor Felix was pastoring. He was ordered to hand over the church's collection of scripture and he wouldn't do it. And the Roman guards tried to, uh, tried to compromise with him. We'll just give us, we've got to burn something, just give us something. And he said, no, it's too precious, I won't give you anything. And on August 30th, he was publicly executed because he would not hand over scriptures to be burned. We have William Tyndale. We owe so much to this man. Scripture, scriptures are in English, translated into the common language of the people because of William. Risked his life to get the Bible into more hands, and he lost his life. He was burned at the stake and burned alive. Scripture was so precious to this guy, he wanted to get it into your hands, and he paid for it. Uh, this, is, uh, this is why the Chinese church, when Christians are imprisoned for doing, and uh, I mean, it's huge, Christians are being imprisoned for doing church and having Bibles, uh, their family members will sneak Scripture to the prison. As they visit their family members in prison, they'll sneak them Scripture written on scraps of paper, little Scriptures written on them. And Chinese, Christ, uh, Chinese Christians, they, they know chapters and books of the Bible just from memorizing it off these little scraps of paper. Now, one lady was interviewed, and she's in prison for owning a Bible and attending church. And she said, I, I memorized a large portions of Scripture because they can't take away what I have hidden in my heart. It's just beautiful. It's a treasure. Throughout most of history, our people has seen Scripture as a priority. And many have given their lives because we just won't let it go, immersing ourselves in the Word. And I fear that we're losing this art of handling God's Word, of being with God, of being what Psalm 1 says, trees planted with deep roots by, by, by the water. Instead, and we're feeling this today, we're being tossed by the wind. No roots to really dig in and last life storms. Because in many ways, come on, at some level, we've just kind of given up. It's hard to read. I get distracted when I read it. I forget to read it. I can just get by. And we can't. We're growing spiritually anemic as the storms roll in. And many are falling away, buying into bad teachings that sound really nice, but just bad teachings because we don't know this. The people of God need to be in the mind of God. And I know I sound like a really old man right now, talking about the days of old. But I'm just going to say it. Let's reclaim a piece of the days of old. Priority number one. Our homes need to be reminded that Scripture guides us. This is our authority. This is our love. This is our treasure. We bind it around our wrists. We write it on the doorposts of our homes. We hide it in our hearts. Your kids need to catch you reading this in the morning. One of my favorite memories growing up is like walking in the living room. First thing I see in the morning is my dad on his knees reading the Bible. How many of our kids need to see that from us? How many of our kids need to hear us memorizing Scripture, meditating on verses? The truth is, you can't afford not to. And if you think you can, your kids definitely can't afford not to. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, would you give it a share? It goes a long way. Also, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't yet. Hey, God has something for you today. Go after it. Blessings. Blessings.